book of Mark once again. We have been uh, taking a break uh, from Mark, but that is uh, the book of the Bible that we've been preaching through this summer. In fact, we began it early in this year, and uh, we're going to pick up where we left off four weeks ago in chapter 6. If you don't have a Bible, you certainly can follow along in the insert found in your bulletin or grab a Bible on the back cart. Uh, I was talking to a peer of mine, a colleague of mine, and uh, saying, you know, when you've been away on vacation, you've been kind of out of rhythm, uh, you want to come back and just have a passage that just is like, man, it's just a, a slam dunk, easy passage to preach. And I came back into my office today and read this and said, oh, okay, uh, this is what we have. So this is uh, a challenge, but I trust that the Lord will bless and speak to you uh, what He wants to speak to you through His Word this morning, despite my weakness, uh, despite my uh, struggle. Uh, you'll remember, those of you who have been here, that as we've walked through this account of Jesus' life, that Jesus has been preaching about the kingdom. Jesus has been ministering to the sick and to those around in need specifically in the region of, of Galilee. And as he's ministered, as he's done these incredible things, by and large, he has been well-received. The, the masses have come to him. Although he was rejected in his hometown, and we looked at that several weeks ago. And the religious authorities and leaders of his day are, are getting incensed at his claims and at his work. Now as we move into this section of Mark, this new section of Mark, which is not clearly divided in any way in your Bibles, but there's a new focus outside of the region of Galilee. And you'll remember last time we were in the book, we talked about how Jesus sent his disciples out two by two in this new ministry in the regions beyond Galilee. And instructed them on what to do as they came into the various towns and the various people that they would encounter. But before we get to that ministry in earnest, there's this section, this section that we come to today, this section that we are wrestling with. Fifteen verses that really have the makings of a Hollywood film. You've got a royal family, sort of. You've got the intersection of, of religion and law, you've got sexuality, and you've got murder. It's a very gripping, compelling, and actually very solemn section that we come to this morning. The question that I've had to wrestle with is, why is it here? Why is it here? What does the Holy Spirit want us to learn, or what does the Holy Spirit want us to be reminded of this morning? Well, that's our challenge. That's the task before us. Please stand with me and listen as I read Mark chapter 6, verses 14 through 29. King Herod heard of it, for Jesus' name had become known. 
Some said John the Baptist has been raised from the dead. That is why these miraculous powers are at work in him. But others said he is Elijah, and others said he is a prophet like one of the prophets of old. But when Herod heard of it, he said, John, whom I beheaded, has been raised. For it was Herod who had sent and seized John and bound him in prison for the sake of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, because he had married her. For John had been saying to Herod, it is not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. And Herodias had a grudge against him and wanted to put him to death, but she could not. For Herod feared John, knowing that he was a righteous and holy man, and he kept him safe. When he heard him, he was greatly perplexed, and yet he heard him gladly. But an opportunity came. When Herod on his birthday gave a banquet for his nobles and military commanders and the leading men of Galilee. For when Herodias' daughter came in and danced, she pleased Herod and his guests. And the king said to the girl, ask me for whatever you wish and I will give it to you. And he vowed to her, whatever you ask me, I will give you up to half my kingdom. And she went out and said to her mother, for what should I ask? And she said, the head of John the Baptist. And she came in immediately with haste to the king and asked, saying, I want you to give me at once the head of John the Baptist on a platter. And the king was exceedingly sorry, but because of his oaths and his guests, he did not want to break his word to her. And immediately the king sent an executioner with orders to bring John's head. He went and beheaded him in the prison and brought his head on a platter and gave it to the girl, and the girl gave it to her mother. When his disciples heard of it, they came and took his body and laid it in a tomb. This is the word of the Lord. Those of you who know me well know that I love music. I love playing music, obviously. I love listening to music. I love being a consumer of music. I love going to concerts. But two of my favorite musicians have stopped making music. And the, mu- the reason they have stopped making music is because they're gone. They've passed away. They're with the Lord. At the age of 28, after producing years of, of God-glorifying music, a man that I know many of you know and love his music as well, on July 28, 1982, Keith Green, along with 11 others, died in a tragic accident, plane crash, leaving a wife and two daughters, one unborn. And then in 1997, Rich Mullins, author of Awesome God, one of the songs we sing, Step by Step, one of the songs that we sing, was involved in a tragic car accident and killed instantly. Two men faithfully serving the Lord Jesus, faithfully serving God, reaching the masses, we might say, gone in an instant. And we ask, as everybody asked when they died, why them? Why so soon? So young. In a crowd this size, perhaps you have 
those kinds of questions that immediately spring to your mind about people in your life. They're questions that we ask, I know that I asked as I come to this test, as I come to this text concerning John. Why? Why John? Why now? Jesus said of John in, in Luke 7, 28, I tell you, among those born of women, none is greater than John. Surely John is more useful alive than he is dead, right? So why? Well, there's a mystery here to God's word and to God's will that we certainly cannot exhaust, and I'm not going to dare try to exhaust, but I do want to talk this morning for a few minutes about purpose. Purpose in life, purpose in death. You see, we don't just wonder the question, why, but also, why such detail? In an account of the life of Jesus, why such detail about the life, or specifically about the death of John? And how in the world did, did Mark find this out? How does Mark know all this? Well, I think we can get the how out of the way pretty quickly. The most logical answer to how Mark knows about this is found in Luke 8. It's a passage that's describing the women who had become followers of Jesus, part of Jesus' church. And one of the women listed is a woman named Joanna. And she is listed as the wife of Chusa, Herod's household manager. You see, maybe even the witness of John and his death that night, that party, Herod's household manager had a change. We don't know. But that's likely how Mark knows such detail through Joanna and through her husband. But what can we learn? Is this just a historical event for us in our Bible knowledge? And yeah, we know who John the Baptist is and we learned about his life. And okay, that's how he died. Check that off you know, file that away in the historical memory banks. Is that all that it's here for? I don't think so. This is God's Word. It's, it's living and it's active. And it's all about one thing. It's all about one story. It's all about one person. One story of redemption through one person, the Lord Jesus. And so I think that's where we're leaded. That's where we're pointed this morning. That's where John leads us. And so I just want to focus on two truths this morning, two simple things for us to meditate on as we walk through this next section of Mark's gospel. And the first truth is this. John's life and his death was all about Jesus. John's life and his death was all about Jesus. As I've already said to you, this is a tough passage to know what to do with. At least it was for me. As I studied, as I listened, as I wrestled with this passage, folks were all over the map in terms of why this account is here. Some focused on Herod and his unwavering, or excuse me, his wavering doubt Right? He's wishy-washy. He, he, he's got John in prison. He doesn't want to kill him. He likes him. He doesn't like him. 
And so some focus on Herod, and others focused on John and his courage. So in other words, it was either don't be like Herod or be like John. And while there may be elements of that, and we'll talk a little bit about that in just a moment, I don't think that's it at all. John doesn't want the focus to be on Herod. John doesn't want the focus to be on him. See, there is a prominence given to this story in the midst of an account of Jesus' life that is really striking. But it's not a prominence meant to draw us to anywhere else but Jesus. This story helps us know and understand Jesus even more. And that's why I think Mark tells us about John that we might know Jesus' world, that we might know his mission. So first, let's talk about the world that Jesus and John lived in. We've heard of Herod before. Herods are all over the New Testament. There's actually four Herods in the New Testament, and it's very easy to get them all confused. Herod the Great was the ruler who, in looking for the newborn Jesus, who he heard was going to be a rival to his rule, in Matthew 2, ordered all the children, all the baby boys, under two, to be slaughtered. That was Herod the Great. This Herod, in this passage, is Herod Antipas, Herod's second son. And so Herod Antipas, keeping the family tradition alive, was ruler in Galilee from about 4 BC to AD 39. Now Mark calls him a king in his account, but Herod is not a king. More specifically, he's a tetrarch. He's a Rome-appointed leader who was supposed to keep peace in that region. I'm sure he wants the title king. And in fact, Mark may be giving him the title king in his account kind of as an ironic ironic tool to what he wanted but didn't get. Or maybe people just called him king because he insists on it. Either way, this Herod has power, real power, and it's power that's been displayed already in this book, in this account. Way back in chapter 1, we learn that John the Baptist was arrested. And here we learn why he was arrested. Back then it was just listed, John was arrested. Here we learn why he was arrested. It's because his message of repentance, which he had been proclaiming to all in the surrounding region, had zeroed in on Herod and Herodias and this unlawful marriage between the two. Now note this, Herod wasn't even a Jew, and yet John brought the truth of God's Word and the truth of God's design for marriage to bear upon this ruler. Herod had married his brother's wife, not because his brother had deceased or died, but because he just simply wanted to make her his own. And so it was that arrest, it was the silencing of John's voice in calling Herod to account and Herodias to account that put John in prison and really began in earnest Jesus' ministry way back in chapter 1. 
Now as Herod hears of all that Jesus is doing, the teaching, the miracles, the crowds, the influence, essentially he is haunted by the way things ended with John. His superstition thinks that John has returned in the form of Jesus. And so here we get a little flashback to an event that happened long ago, that happened much earlier. How much earlier, we don't know. But we learn that Herod arrested John and simply held on to him, kept him locked up, and was conflicted about what to do with him. It was Herodias who had insisted on his imprisonment and likely wanted more done to him, and yet Herod was torn. John's message of repentance, John's message of the kingdom was confusing to Herod, but it was also compelling. John's life was obviously holy and attractive, and yet ultimately, John's demands were were too much. And at the end of the day, Herod was a politician, right? His actions followed the will of the masses. Folks knew about John. They had flocked to John. He couldn't just kill John. John was not worthy of death, even in the people's eyes. He was holy. He was righteous. He was a prophet of God, doing God's will. So rather than execute him, something his wife obviously wanted, they just held on to him until this one fateful night that Mark recounts to us. It was likely a drunken gathering of men And Herod makes this public vow, this public rash vow in response to what no doubt was a sensual dance by a teenage stepdaughter of his. And he couldn't back out of it. It's just the opportunity that the evil Herodias needed to silence John once and for all. It's such an awful end to such an influential life. And and it's a gory end as well. I, in my mind's eye for years, ever since I was a kid, just that scene of an executioner handing the platter to a teenage girl and then the girl handing it to her mother. It's horrific. And Mark leaves out no detail. He wants us to not just know, but he wants us to feel this death. And he wants his first readers especially, I think, to feel the hatred and the evil of those who oppose Jesus and his message. This was the world. This was the context that John ministered in, that Jesus ministered in, that the early Christians began to grow in. And frankly, in, in our world, in our modern day, it's a context that's not all that hard for us to imagine now. I mean, it is in Edmonds, Washington, but it isn't in Iraq, in Fallujah, in Syria. Not just was this the world that John lived in and Jesus lived in and many of our brothers and sisters in Christ live in today. A world that will get you killed if you believe in Jesus. But this is the world of Mark's first readers. We're going to get to that in a moment. 
The consequences of following Jesus in such a world can be deadly. Feel the gravity of that as Mark recounts John's death. So the context is important, but even more so, John himself and the role of John, the role of John the Baptist, and the role that John has in God's story of redeeming the world. Yes, John was courageous. He called out the sin of those in power. That took some guts. Yes, John came on the scene after hundreds of years of silence as God's prophet, as a splash of water in the face of those who had forgotten God. Yes, John is the new Elijah, calling people to repent of their sin. But remember, don't forget, John is simply the best man. John is the best man. Everything he does is meant to draw attention to the groom, to Jesus. In the Gospel of John, another account of Jesus written by a different man than John the Baptist, but he quotes John the Baptist in John 3, 28. He says, this is John the Baptist, I am not the Christ, but I have been sent before him. The one who has the bride is the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. He must increase. I must decrease. John 3.30, one of my favorite verses. You see, this account is the proof that John has fulfilled his role. That his purpose as the forerunner has been fulfilled. The lamp has done its work, the light has come, and the light can burn on its own. And so the lamp is snuffed out. John's life was all about Jesus, and John's death is no different. And that doesn't mean it wasn't tragic. That doesn't mean it shouldn't sober us. Mark doesn't record Jesus' response to the murder of his cousin, but Matthew speaks of it. Matthew 14, 13, we read, now when Jesus heard this, he withdrew. He withdrew from there in a boat to a desolate place by himself. Jesus was no doubt grieved by the loss of John, but one also wonders how much of John's death Jesus felt in the fact that this was his impending fate. John was not just forerunner to Jesus. John was prototype to Jesus. John was a forerunner to Jesus in his death. For Jesus too would be slaughtered by the very ones that he came to give life. By the very ones that were supposed to be on his side. And Herod, this Herod, will be party to Jesus' death as well. He will mock this Jesus before he sends him to Pilate and says, you do with him. See, it was the person of Jesus, the kingdom of God, that drove John's life, and it was the person of Jesus and the kingdom of God that drove John to his death. And yet, John believed what he preached, and he knew that his reality would rule the day. That this Jesus whom he proclaimed would rise from the dead. And so here in John's death, as he would want, 
we need to be pointed to the one he proclaimed. And the one who accomplished all that needed to be accomplished as you, as I, face the impending reality of our own death. So the simple question is, do you know him? Do you know that Jesus that John clung to as that sword came down on him? Can you trust him even in the face of death? But don't stay there. Because as we sang, as we began this service singing, we are people of the risen King. And the resurrection takes the sting of death away. There is certain hope. There is a better home. As we conclude this passage, there's one more truth, an application to us that really is similar to the truth that we looked at way back in chapter 1 when we first were introduced to John the Baptist's life. John was certainly unique. He had a unique role in the story that God is writing in this beautiful story of redemption. And yet his life of witness, his life of pointing us to Jesus in life and in death ought to make us think about our own. And so the application for us is simply this. Our lives and our deaths are to be all about Jesus. Our lives and our deaths are to be all about Jesus. While scholars debate on the exact time that Mark was written, this book that we're studying, I think there's good evidence, and I've stated this before, that Mark was written during this time of intense persecution under the Roman Emperor Nero. And I think this passage gives further evidence to that fact about why Mark would put this in there. You see, these early Christians, the first readers of Mark, the first hearers of Mark, those who are trying to piece together this faith, this young faith in this Messiah who had appeared on the scene, who had risen from the dead and their grandma had seen it, or maybe they had seen it, they had heard about it, and they're believing it and they're trying to figure out what it means for their lives. And meanwhile, Rome is bearing down on them. They needed to hear about John's death. Why? Two reasons. One, to teach them that sometimes the cost of discipleship is imprisonment and even death. Right? We've talked about this before. Following Jesus is not roses and rainbows. Following Jesus is a cross. And that cross looks differently for everyone, but the cost of discipleship may indeed mean the end of you. I mean, discipleship means death in some form for all of us. Death to self, death to sin, death to the former way of life, but it may even mean physical death. And God's mysterious providence, we experience that in different ways. We do. 
But how good to be reminded, how good for these early Christians to be reminded of the one who stood in the face of death and confessed Christ. Whose life was all about Jesus and whose death was all about Jesus. They needed to hear that. Because secondly, it gives them courage. I mean, standing on the shoulders of John's life and death and the reality of Jesus' resurrection from the grave and his promise to be with his followers to the end of the age, they could stand. We can stand. And as we sit here in a different context, it may not be long. I mean, how many of us, how many of us parents fear for our children and for the kind of stands that they may have to make in the gospel, even in this blessed nation. You see, we need stories like this. Stories to encourage us, to remind us that this world is not all that there is, that the reality as defined by so many of those in the world is not true reality. Jesus is raised the gospel is true to know him, to love him, to live in him, and to die in him. This is life. John knew this. And this is John's legacy. And by God's grace, it ought to be ours as well. I began with the story of the tragic death of Keith Green, and I thought it fitting one of his songs was popping into my head. I thought it fitting to end with some lyrics from one of his songs. He says, Make my life a prayer to you, speaking to the Lord. I want to do what you want me to. No empty words, no white lies, no token prayers, no compromise. I want to shine the light you gave through your Son you sent to save us from ourselves and our despair. It comforts me to know you're really there. I want to die and let you give your life to me so that I might live and share the hope you gave to me, the love that sets me free. I want to tell the world out there you're not some fable or fairy tale that I've made up inside my head. You're God the Son and you've risen from the dead. May that be our prayer. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for those who have gone before us. Most importantly, we thank you for the Lord Jesus, the one to whom John pointed, the one to whom John lived, and the one for whom John died. We thank you for his sacrifice for sin on the cross that makes us right before you. Oh, Holy Spirit, draw us ever closer to you through him and through his love. And we thank you for those who have gone after him, men like John the Baptist, men like nameless martyrs throughout the ages who have lived and died for Christ. May we be those so secure in your love, so secure and so enraptured with the gospel 
that we are willing to stand, that we are willing to die. Oh, give us grace to follow you, we pray. All of this in Jesus' name, amen.